So I'm going to be working from a program today. Um, uh, so um, if you're online, uh, there was a link, so I, I hope you had a chance to look at that. Um, if you're here, um, you can fill it in if you remember to bring a pencil or something like that. Um, and the reason for the program is because um, this is part of a series of, uh, of talks based on... Um, on good questions or, or important questions, um, and and <laughs> there we go. Um, so uh, important questions um, that uh, in the past uh, couple of decades, Christianity has, has kind of moved out of its uh, privileged position in our society. That that we we uh, used to be kind of the default that people, even if you weren't a Christian, you kind of saluted, you know, when Christians told you to, and you, you kind of uh, went through the, the motions that were driven by a Christian culture. And that's really not the case today. Uh, Christians are still a very big part of our of our society, and there's a lot of Christian legacy that, that makes up our society. But people increasingly feel comfortable saying, yeah, well, why? Um, why should I do that? Why should I believe that? And what we're discovering is that some of the questions that now, you know, in the past they would have been impertinent, but now they're they're actually good questions. And uh, so, so they're good questions and they're worth discussing. And because they are good questions, it turns out they're things that Christians have given a lot of thought to in the past. That we can we can uh, look at the way that people in the past have answered them back when Christianity was not in a dominant position in the culture. And because of that, um, I wanted to talk about these questions. And it's been a couple of years since the last time I did one of these these talks. But um, uh, there are good questions. And, and a couple of times this spring, I heard people ask this question, which is, what? Uh, why does God get the credit if I do good, but if I do wrong, I get the blame? Why does God get the credit if I do good, but if I do wrong, I get the blame? That's that's a great question. Now I, I titled I titled the message "Where Are My Accolades?" because I don't think anybody really cares if God gets the blame for things that go wrong, right? As long as it's not me, I'm fine with God getting you know, or anybody else. One of you can get the blame. I don't want to get the blame when things go wrong. But it's it's the specific idea of how come I don't get credit when I do good. I think that's the the real question behind this question, and it's a good question. So that's the the. The, the topic that I want to address today. And if you don't have that question, that's fine, because you know someone. There's someone in your life who does have that question. And so I want to, to discuss it together today. So um, we have to begin, um, because we're moderns, we have to begin with the question, what is good? This would not have been a question in um, previous centuries. People, well, uh, until a couple of centuries ago, this would not have been an issue. In the ancient world, everybody knew what was good. It was it was this basket of things that you were taught, the kind of things that we teach our children. You know, be honest. Um, you know, be on time. Be courageous. Uh, whatever whatever collection of of um, folk wisdom we might call it. Uh, just gets handed to us. Those those virtues were what was good. That good was the collection. That entire basket of of virtues was good. It wasn't an abstract thing. It was it was a collection of practices, and that was that was um, something that was that was uh, uh, all the way across the ancient world. For example, we see it um, not only in the Hebrew scriptures, which we're going to look at, but but um, in the Greek philosophers. The the philosopher um, Epicurus said it's impossible to live the pleasant life. He, he was writing about the pleasant life. That was what he cared about. But he said it's impossible to do that unless. Um, you are also living sensibly, nobly, and justly. So unless you practice the virtues, you can't have an enjoyable life 
regardless. So he said that the virtues are important. And in India, a couple of centuries earlier, a Buddha said that you should set your heart on doing good, that you do these things, do them over and over and over again, and you will be filled with joy. So this was very common across the ancient world. And of course, as we'll see, they were part of the Hebrew um, scriptures as well. But this thinking was challenged in the Enlightenment um, because people said, look, I don't want a laundry list. I don't want a basket of, of virtues. Is there some higher principle that's at work here? Is there something I can just kind of work backwards from? If I'm facing a difficult situation, I want to know, is there something I can I can arrive at um, uh, from first principles? This is really enlightenment thinking. You know, is there some way I can... I can just simply have a rule of thumb that will guide me. And so so this was the question in the Enlightenment, that, that they didn't want to have that basket of, of choices anymore. And so there were two main uh, schools of thought initially, and one of them was the idea that, that you could do no wrong, that, that if something was wrong to do, then you couldn't recommend it, no matter what the consequences, that yes, there were special cases where it would be where it would result in a bad outcome. But if it was wrong, you shouldn't do it. There were other people who said, no, sometimes you have, you know, circumstances change. And so you need to, you need to be aware of the outcome that you need to, you need to be willing to bend based on what would produce the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And one of the ways that this has been illustrated, here's a cartoon that illustrates it. It's called the trolley problem. And it's this hypothetical situation where there's a trolley car and it's barreling out of control and you know the brakes don't work or something like that and there are coincidentally five people who are tied down on the main line of the trolley car but there is a spur line and on the spur line there's only one person tied down so in one case in one scenario um five people are going to die when the trolley runs over them but in the other scenario if the, the trolley can be diverted onto the spur line, then only one person will die. And the question is, should you flip the lever? You're standing there next to it. Should you flip the lever? Should you divert the trolley? So that first line of thought said, no, I can't do wrong because then I will be responsible for the death of the one person. If I stand here, five people will die, but I didn't do anything wrong myself. So that was one way of thinking about it. And the other way that I mentioned was the idea of saying, well, no, but five people is worse than one. That you should, you should be willing to, to take that on yourself and say, yes, I did something that was wrong, but it was to, to produce the greatest good. Now, this is a hypothetical scenario, and so people have made a lot of jokes about it. So, um, they say, well, this is the way you imagine the, the trolley problem, but, but more often than not, that's not the way it works. You're the one tied to the track, and it's somebody else who's making decisions on your behalf. So you better hope that they have a good a good way of thinking about it. I like this one. Um, it says, this isn't a trolley problem. Um, there's really nothing you can do to stop these people from dying. Do you pull the lever? And it's just like, well, this is such an abstract question. It's like, I don't even know what I would do in that circumstance. But my favorite is this one. It says, nobody is in any danger. You are a professor of moral philosophy. Do you tie people to the rails to save your job? (laughs) So, (laughs) 
So, uh, people in the Enlightenment began to ask, what is the, what is the principle? I need an ethical principle that I can apply to my life. So if I happen to come across a, a trolley car and some people tied to the tracks, um, I, I can know what to do. So that was the, the Enlightenment way of thinking about it. And, and as I mentioned, that in the ancient world, that was not the way they, they didn't talk about principles. They talked about practices. They talked about things you did. Good was doing good or the collection of things that you did that were good. And so we see this in the, the uh, Hebrew scriptures, and in particular, that basket of good things was the law. So we see in the, um, in the Psalms, the psalmist says, you are good, God, you are good, and you do good, and I can learn how to be good by studying your law. So teach me your statutes. I want to be good. I want to do good. So teach me your statutes. And so the the idea was it wasn't just a, a culturally conditioned set of uh, practices or norms. It wasn't just kind of what my grandparents taught my parents and they taught me. It was it was not what everybody else did. It was it was um, it was all those things, but it was also something that was validated by God's um, by, by by having been given by God and by God's own character as a good God. So there was a good law of a good God. So. That's the way the, the psalmist uh, described it, and that was very, very uh, common as you read the scriptures. But because everybody knew what, the, what was good, everybody knew those things, everybody knew what the law required, the question was more about motivational. And so you see a lot of the Proverbs are this way. They're motivational. It's like, why should you do it? And the answer is because it will produce good things. So here's an example of a proverb. A hard worker is in charge, while a lazy one is sentenced to hard labor. It's not telling us some abstraction work hard. It's saying work hard because if you do, you'll get a promotion. And if you don't, you'll get sent to a labor camp. So, um, you know, work hard for sure. Um, so, so it was this idea of a motivational thing. It was saying, why should you do the thing that everybody knows you should do? And the answer is because good things will result from it. Now, they weren't they weren't simpletons back in the, the, the time of the, the Proverbs. They knew that that wasn't always the case. They knew there were exceptions. These were general observations. They're saying, when I look at the world, this is the way it seems to be. It's not an ironclad guarantee. If you do this thing, I promise you'll get a promotion. It was saying, this is the way the world works. This is, this is the, 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 the intent behind the, um, the, the law. And because there are exceptions, sometimes that doesn't work out. And the, the book of Job wrestles with this for 40 chapters. And at the end, God tells Job, he says, don't blame me. Don't question the law. The law is still good. But he says, would you question my judgment? Would you deem me guilty? Would you blame the law I gave you so that you could be innocent? Is it so important to you um, that you would actually undermine the thing that defines what it is to be innocent. Would, would you undermine the law in order to say that 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 um, that you are innocent? So it was saying there are exceptions, and at that point you ultimately have to throw yourself on the relationship you have with God. You say, look, I don't understand why in in my particular circumstances I worked hard, I still got sent to a labor camp. Why is that? I don't know. I have to trust that God has his reasons. I have to trust the relationship I have with God. That's the understanding. And we see that in the New Testament because Jesus said the same thing. It's not always going to work out the way you'd like. You're not going to like what you see. And so Peter famously says at one point, uh, Jesus says, what about you, Peter? You know, Do you guys want to leave too? And Peter kind of says, it's not that we haven't thought about it, but where would we go? Uh, 
you know, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter says, I'm just going to trust you here. This is a place where I don't like what you're telling me. I don't like the implications, but I'm going to trust you. So, so the idea is that that is, um, that is the, the ancient world's thought about good is it's the set of practices and you do them even though sometimes they don't seem to work out. You trust them because they are validated by God's character. So that's what good is. That you cannot be good without practicing good. It's not some abstraction. You're not going to bump into any trolley cars. The question is, what are you going to do right here? Not if some moral philosophy professor ties people down. So you can't be good without practicing good. And we see this in the New Testament. The New Testament, like the Hebrew Scriptures, is very much about the set of um, the set of practices. And so, so uh, just like we see in the in the Hebrew Scriptures, the um, the prophet Isaiah writes. God speaks through the prophet and says says to the people, "You have been doing nothing. You've been standing by watching while bad things happen to people." And he says, "That's evil." So he says, "Put an end to such evil." Learn to do good. To do good, you actually have to put your thinking into practice. You actually have to begin doing the good thing, not simply thinking about it. How do you do that? You seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. And when Jesus comes along, he says, I'm going to give you a principle that will help you make sense of the practices. So Jesus kind of combines that that way of thinking that, that uh, we, we have now from the Enlightenment but he also says, but the practice is important. So he says, um, or he says, and then the Apostle Paul sums up uh, a lot of his teaching by saying, all the law has been fulfilled in a single statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, the way you, the, the through line that runs through the, 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 the law, the, the purpose of the law, is to help you understand what it means to love your neighbor. And so Jesus refines that in some interesting ways. He says that it actually has to achieve a good thing for somebody, that it can't simply be swapping favors. There must be a net improvement in, in the circumstances. So Jesus says, when you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return and that will be your reward. So don't simply, you know, swap favors because there's no increase. There's no increase in the amount of love there. So he says, he says, um, that there should be a, a benefit to other people for it to be loving. And he says, don't do it just for show. Whenever you give to the poor, don't blow your trumpet on the, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that they may get praise from people. It's not about, you know, what you post on social media. It's not about the yard sign, you know, the politician you favor. It's about, is someone's circumstances actually getting better? It's not enough to say, but I believe all the right things. Jesus says, yeah. And, you know, if you're just looking for credit with people, they say, oh, that's a good person. Well, they may be fooled, but I'm not. The way we'll know you're a good person is if you actually change things for the better. So Jesus says, give to the poor. And Jesus says, but having said that, having said that, it is important what you do and what the impact is. He says, but it must be done for the right reasons. It must be coming from a place of love. So he says, you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the the idea there is, is how do you see the other person? Do you see them as an object of love or do you see them as an object of physical gratification? 
Because if it's not coming from a place of love, it doesn't matter. I didn't do anything wrong. Jesus says, yeah, but you're still missing the point. The point is, are you loving? So you can't be good without practicing good. And Jesus gives us some some helpful refinements about how that works. Now, our question is, what about credit? Where are my accolades? And uh, in the ancient world, that would have been an issue. They were certainly concerned with their reputation and things like that. But at some level, they also knew that that virtue was its own reward. That the the virtue of of uh, or the the reward for for being courageous was being courageous. That I have courage, and so I can go into circumstances that would frighten some people because I have courage. So there's 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 an idea that that I don't know how much of a reward I should get. But the other question about rewards is is how we assess um, responsibility. We have to ask how much credit. If 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 the complaint is that God is getting credit that belongs to me, we should ask our question. We should ask the question: How do we assign credit for something? So let me let me ask two hypothetical questions. Uh, suppose a child is born into circumstances of poverty and privation, and all they ever experience is neglect and abuse, and they grow up and they commit a terrible act of violence. Do they have complete responsibility for that act of violence? If you were the judge, would you sentence them exactly the same as you would somebody else who grew up in a situation of privilege? Most people would say, no, there are mitigating circumstances. That, that while I can't overlook the crime, at the, on the other hand, there is some, some sense of societal responsibility. Something went wrong here that this child grew up so badly. And if you're kind of saying, well, yeah, but they should still, you know, you know, get the chair or whatever, you know, I, I don't know what people are thinking in response to that. Um, but if, if, if that's your perspective, let me just ask a totally different question, but it gets at the same underlying problem. You've seen, you've seen the award show, you know, the Oscars or something like that, or maybe the end of a Super Bowl, and somebody asks, you know, say something. You just won the big prize. You're the best actress. You're the best actor. You just are the MVP. What, what do you say now? And that person says, I'd like to thank someone. I'd like to thank my parents. I'd like to thank my high school drama teacher. I'd like to thank my coach. I'd like to thank the other members of my team. They say, it wasn't just me. Yes, I'm the MVP. Yes, I've got the statue, but it's not just me. There's other people who were involved in this. So when we talk about getting the credit, do we understand the idea that other people can have credit for something that I did that's right? Because that's the place we're going to see that God um, certainly deserves some credit. And we can say what fraction of it belongs to God and what doesn't. So uh, let's go ahead now and look at the way Christianity answers this question. Because Christianity says, yes, of course God helps us. God should be one of those people we list in our acceptance speech. We should say, yes, God helped me do this thing. So, so how does God do that? Well, first of all, like I said, he gives us this list. He, he gives us the, the list of things to do, and he gives us the principle behind them all, the through line, which is to love. So God gives us that, but he gives us so much more. The psalmist says, I raise my eyes to the mountain, right? When you go out later today, raise your eyes toward the mountain. Look at the beautiful world that God made, and think to yourself, the maker of heaven and earth will help me too. That he is powerful. Nothing can stop God, and God is a God who helps. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So God is a God who helps. We see that. God has actually 
put his fingerprints all over creation. When you see the good creation, you know that God is a good God and God will be someone you can turn to for help. So that's one way. Another way, those circumstances, the, the football player or the uh, um, actor, the the criminal, the, the person who, who grew up in a bad circumstance, they all have circumstances that were beyond their control, that, that they didn't get to pick who their high school teacher would be. Everybody has circumstances that they don't control. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, he says, um, you there, the one who just said that you're better than someone else. Who, who was that? Who was it? Who just, uh, raise your hand. Okay. I want to ask you a question. What is, what is it that you received? Uh, what is, what is it that you have that you didn't receive? You know, let's parcel this out. Let's figure out, uh, parse it out. Let, let's figure this out. How much of it is you and how much of it is stuff that you just got handed to you, that you had that coach, you had those desperate circumstances when you were growing up. How much of your circumstance, how much of where you are now is is something that you are responsible for? So Paul says, Paul says, let's, let's apportion that properly. And he says, and the parts that you received, stop bragging about them. Because... You had nothing to do with those things. You were just lucky. You got a great teacher. You got a great coach. Quit bragging about that. Brag about your part for sure. You get credit for that. Fine. But he says, why are you bragging as if you didn't receive those parts? So, the circumstances. Who does get credit? Well, obviously, the circumstances, with whether they're good or bad, are something that God has ultimate responsibility for. God is the one who controls where we're born. You know, God gets to pick who's who's your parents who's your grandparents so god gets credit for our circumstances but god also offers help there is an astonishing promise from jesus in john's gospel jesus says whatever when you ask me for anything in my name i will do it that is an astonishing promise and i've heard people say well yeah but i don't want to put the lord to the test because Jesus said that too. But my guess is that when we face the throne of judgment, when we have that face-to-face conversation with Jesus, he's not going to tell many of us, hey, you know what? You put me to the test too often. You kept asking for things that I wasn't going to give you. My guess is more often than not, Jesus is going to say, why didn't you ask for more? I promised you. I think that's something we need to ask ourselves is, is, is the reason I can't give God any credit because I haven't even asked God for anything. So maybe maybe God's willing to do more than we appreciate. But as we dig deeper into Christian theology, we get at this. We get at the idea that ultimately, if we do good, it's because God is the one who enabled it. The, the Apostle Paul embodies this. He says, I am a different person. The Paul I used to be, or the Saul I used to be, he... He was crucified with Christ, and the life I live now, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm a different person. It is Christ living in me. So he says, if I do something good, if there's something admirable or excellent about me, it's Christ living in me, because I know, I know what the old Paul was like. Some of you know what the old Paul was like, and I'm not him. He was crucified with Christ. Ultimately, this is the promise of Christianity, that those who put their trust in Christ become new creatures. We are born from above. There's one other way that God helps us. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, he said, 
we can tackle impossible problems. How do you solve a problem like poverty? How do you solve a problem like like institutional racism? You can't. And what a lot of people would do is say, then I shouldn't try. And what the Apostle Paul says is, no, you do your piece. And how that works out is up to God. God causes all things to work together for good for the ones who love God, who are called according to his purposes. You do your piece and leave the big picture to God. You can't solve institutional racism? Maybe not. But God can. So you do your piece. You do your thing and leave the other part to God. So you can be encouraged even in the face of of impossible odds. You can say, you know what? God will take care of that other thing. That's another way God gives us help. He gives us encouragement to do the things that we attempt. So, I want to go outside as much as you do. (laughs) All right. But the real message of Christianity is that it's not about keeping score. That if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, why should God get the credit and I get the blame? They still don't understand Christianity because Christianity is not about keeping score. Jesus said, don't keep score. He said, don't judge people. He said, don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This is the essence of Christianity. And Jesus puts it into practice himself. He says, he says, uh, a woman is brought to him, uh, having been caught in the act of, a, of adultery, and they say the law requires her to be stoned. What do you say, teacher? And Jesus ignores them, and they kept pestering him, and he finally stands up and he says, okay, whichever one of you hasn't sinned, you cast the first stone. And they fade away. And if you know the rest of that story, He says to the woman, did no one condemn you? And he says, and she says, no one. And he says, neither do I. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. Jesus, the one person there who could have, who could have condemned her, the one person who was in a position to throw that stone didn't. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And I think that bothers a lot of people. I think that brings out the the accountant in us. And we say, God should be able to do math better than that. God should be able to see this person did a lot of wrong and very little good, and this person did a lot of good and very little, very little wrong. Me. And I should get credit. Where are my accolades? And Jesus told a parable about that. He told about people who were hired to do a job. They agreed on a wage. And they went and they worked in the man's vineyard. And then later on in the day, the man picked up at different times. He got more people to come and work in his vineyard. And at the end of the day, he paid them what he had agreed to pay them. But he said, put the ones who were last first so that everybody can see what I'm doing. And he paid them all the same wage. And the people who were hired in the morning, they said, great, I'm going to get more. And he didn't give them more. And they complained. And he said, friend, I did you no wrong. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? See, I didn't get the math wrong. I know how to add. I just choose to be generous. It's not about keeping score. I can keep score. But I choose to be generous. And that's what Christianity is all about.
And the reason it works is because, in fact, God does take the blame. And it is we who get a reward. This is the scandal of the cross. The Apostle Peter says, He, Jesus, carried in his body on the cross the sins that we committed. He did this so that we might live in righteousness, having nothing to do with sin. By his wounds, you were healed. God does take the blame. And we receive a reward. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul writes that whatever you do, do it from the heart for the Lord and not for people. Do it because you love God. You want to bring a smile to God's face. And yes, you've got a lousy job, but you know that by doing it well, that will make God smile. And as a result, you will receive an inheritance as a reward. If you become the kind of person who loves God, then God will spend eternity with you. If you hate God, if you want nothing to do with God, God will not insist. But if you have grown to a place where you love God, then God wants you to enjoy that, not just in this life, but in the life to come. You will receive an an inheritance as a reward. But that's just pie in the sky by and by. Maybe, 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 who knows? Jesus says there's more to it than that. He says, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing so that you may um, give to the poor in secret. Your Father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Jesus leaves it ambiguous. You may get your reward right now. And in fact, later in that same uh, biography, um, he says this, All who have left houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, or farms because of my name will receive a hundred times more and that celestial inheritance. Jesus says you will receive a hundred times more in this life. You will receive a reward because Jesus took the blame. So, Don't keep score, but do good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, we thank you for the gospel, which, if we're honest with ourselves, we know we have done too much that is blameworthy and not enough that is praiseworthy. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for sending Jesus to take the blame away from us. We thank you for the reward that he offers us. And we pray, Lord, that as we go about our work of doing good, of being loving, that you would help us to remember it is not and has never been about keeping score. We pray all these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.